0: Hello and welcome to the political history of the United States. Episode 3.35, Return to the Southern Theater. It has been a significant amount of time since we have really looked carefully at the events going on further south, specifically in Virginia and Pennsylvania. There are a couple of reasons for this. Primarily, most of the fighting had been further north occurring largely in northern New York, up through Nova Scotia. In fact, since the fall of Braddock, the engagements further south have been considerably different from the larger battles that we have seen to the north. Originally, I was going to continue sprinkling in events from the south and middle colonies into the show as we moved along. But I eventually decided that it would make more sense if we broke it out and had our own episodes dedicated to looking at the war further south. This means that because it has been a while since we have really addressed this theater of the war, again, not really since Braddock's ill-fated march, we are going to have to move back in time a bit to understand all of the events that would lead up to the defining conflicts along the Virginia and Pennsylvania frontiers following Braddock's death. So today I am going to go sliding all the way back to 1755 and move forward from there to give everybody a better idea of the dynamics along the frontiers and throughout the Ohio country. In some ways, it seems strange that we have not spent more time looking at events in Pennsylvania, Virginia, and throughout the Ohio country. The entire French and Indian War was, at least on paper, a dispute over the Ohio country and who was going to have long-term control over the interior of North America. If you'll recall, all of this finally came to a head over Fort Duquesne, which was built at the Forks of the Ohio in modern-day Pittsburgh. Both the British and the French claimed ownership over the strategically critical forks, as well as the entire Ohio River Valley for that matter, and neither side was all that thrilled about the others' presence and claims over the region. The building of the French Fort Duquesne was simply too much, and proved to be the catalyst for the outbreak of hostilities. Making the situation even more complex was the fact that the region was, at least nominally, Controlled by the Iroquois, which brought a third player into the conflict. When George Washington caused an international incident by shooting French emissary Jumonville, and then getting hemmed in at Fort Necessity, the war was essentially on. Way back in 1755, the plan had been for a decisive strike on Fort Duquesne, led by Edward Braddock. Things went about as terribly sideways as things can go and we end up with Braddock suffering a catastrophic loss. During the fighting, Braddock himself was killed and the British were sent running. Despite still having a numerical advantage, there would be no second attempt on Duquesne in 1755. With Braddock's loss, we really don't see any more major engagements in either Pennsylvania or Virginia. The main theater of the war had shifted to the north, to places like Lewisburg, Lake George, and Acadia. This shift to the north makes it almost easy to forget that further south, the war was still going on. What the colonists in the south experienced, however, was considerably different from the colonists further to the north. Rather than the large pitched battles like we have seen at Fort we Oswego in Frontenac, or any of the other places we have gone, the fighting along the Virginia and Pennsylvania frontiers resembles the Native American tactics that we have been seeing for over a century now. Specifically, French Allied tribes would move into an area, ambush a British frontier settlement, and get out of there before anybody could muster an adequate response. These attacks were devastating for colonists all around the frontier. Not just for their actual damage and losses, something that we are going to talk about momentarily, but psychologically as well. These attacks came as a shock and were absolutely terrifying to the colonists who had to experience them. The result of this was a humanitarian crisis as people fled from the frontier towards the relative safety of the more urban areas. These surprise attacks from the French Allied tribes acted then as a further check against Virginian involvement in the greater war. Busy defending their frontier, Virginia had fume in despair to send north to what had become the main front. The depopulation along the frontier was likewise a very serious problem for the British and one that they were desperate to stop. First, there was the obvious humanitarian crisis that it was causing, the one that we were just talking about. People were being forced to relocate, and it meant that more densely populated areas were suddenly dealing with an influx of refugees, which, in turn, was causing a significant struggle in those areas to support the quickly growing populations. The accompanying depopulation of the frontier Likewise, meant that they were much harder to defend, thus further exacerbating the already dire crisis. To be clear, this was not some imaginary boogeyman that the colonists feared either, but a very real and very distinct threat. It is, of course, impossible to say how many colonists were actually taken captive or killed along the frontiers. We do know, however, that for men captured along the frontier, the outcome was always dicey. Either they would be executed outright, or sold to the French for labor. For the frontier colonists, trying their best to simply live their lives, this was a terrifying prospect. They suddenly faced a new reality where settlers were routinely being killed, their farms looted and burned, and women and children being kidnapped. From the period between 1755 and 1758, over 1,500 were killed, with another 1,000 taken captive Along the Pennsylvania frontiers alone. A consequence of these raids is that it would lead to a policy of reactionary retribution by the British that proved to be equally as brutal. The result was this back and forth series of mutual massacres committed by both the English and Indian forces alike. In Pennsylvania, for example, the Indian strike at Penn Creek in October 1755 saw 47 of the 93 colonists who remained in the town either killed or captured. The following year, in September 1756, at the Indian village of Ketanning, Pennsylvania, British troops came in and completely destroyed the settlement. Beyond killing every Indian in the village that they could find, they burned homes, destroyed crops, and just generally brought destruction. Whereas the men were often killed outright, women and children were more often spared immediate execution. They were often captured and held as hostages of the tribes. Those who were captured by frontier Indians would be forced to figure out what they were going to do next with their suddenly upended lives. This would cover a wide range of behavior, of course. Many chose to assimilate because, pragmatically, what else were you really going to do? This is the situation, this is your life, so you probably should just deal with it. Others would more fully embrace their new reality. Marrying into the tribes, and then, even when given the chance to escape, they would decline and remain living in their new life. Others would, of course, escape if the opportunity ever presented itself. The situation along the frontier caused its fair share of headaches, especially in Virginia and Pennsylvania. I want to look at the response in both colonies, as they will both be distinct from each other, and ultimately are going to help explain their roles in the war. Beginning in Virginia, the chaos along their frontier did indeed act as a check on their greater involvement in the war. Rather than sending men north to attack Duquesne, or move even further to somewhere, say, like Niagara, the provincial troops were stuck in Virginia, trying to prevent further Indian incursion. Virginia took the remaining provincial scraps from what had once been Braddock's army and set them to the difficult task of frontier defense. In command over this group was... In out more battle hardened George Washington. No longer the inexperienced youth whose party had killed French emissary Jumonville or had commanded a desperate defense at Fort Necessity, Washington had an opportunity, though brief, to interact with a large army of British regulars. As an aide de camp under Braddock, Washington had proven himself again to be exceptionally brave. He was well respected, had battle experience and had a strong knowledge of the land. He was a reasonably logical pick for the job. Setting up at Winchester in the Shenandoah Valley, Washington turned to the job of just how to defend a large and often sparsely populated frontier. With people, understandably, fleeing the danger to more urban areas, it meant that the frontiers were becoming increasingly more sparsely populated, thus making them that much more vulnerable. Washington was, with no doubt, facing an almost impossible task of trying to secure the Virginia frontier. He wrote to Robert Dinwiddie in April 1756 about the serious risk posed to the frontier family from Indian raids. With the tactics of the native tribes to quickly strike a settlement and then get out, Washington found himself perpetually in a position of attempting to play catch-up. Realistically, By the time the Virginia militia could respond in any meaningful way, the attack was long over. Virginia was not the only colony struggling to secure their frontier borders. Over in Maryland, for example, the colonial government pretty much threw up their hands and retreated to the safety of Baltimore. Everybody else was on their own and would end up falling under the protection of Washington. To the north, Pennsylvania was facing many of the same problems as Virginia was. As in Virginia, the Pennsylvania frontiers were a dangerous place. Indian raids were an ongoing problem, with some of them coming within a two-day march of Philadelphia itself. However, where the colonies differed came in their response. Though Washington was facing a tough assignment as commander of the Virginia militia. At least Virginia had a militia. In Pennsylvania, we run headlong into the problem of a practical defense in a colony where the leadership is made up of a majority of pacifists. The situation in Pennsylvania was a complex one. The pacifist Quakers still controlled very significant amounts of power within the colony. However, right beyond that, you find a complex tangle of political alliances and contradictory interests. Further complicating the situation was that the previously neutral Delaware tribe, that lived along the Susquehanna River, had suddenly turned hostile towards the British. This tribe, also referred to as the Lenny Lenape, was the same group that had been settled by William Penn himself along the Susquehanna River to provide that outer layer of defense for his pacifist colony. If you recall, the colonists and the Delaware tribe worked together, and the colonists agreed to respect their land claims in eastern Pennsylvania. The reasoning for the Quakers is that the Delaware were now a friendly tribe that would essentially form a defensive perimeter on the frontiers of the colony, something that the pacifist Quakers were more than happy with. If you're looking for all of this, we talked about it way back in episode 2.20. Despite this promising start, a lot had changed in the last 70 years since the founding. Specifically, years of bad land deals such as the walking purchase we had talked about back in episode 3.24, had done a lot to erode the previously good relationship. These attacks by the Delaware were, in part, so stunning because for so long, the colonists had lived in peace with the tribe. The frontier settlers had a long history of living adjacent to Indian tribes. They frequently traded amongst one another, and had fallen into a mostly peaceful coexistence with each other. The settlers on the frontier were blindsided when that peaceful coexistence suddenly evaporated before their eyes. To be clear, it's not just the Delaware tribe that had become hostile. However, their sudden attacks against the colonists were a shocking development. With Pennsylvania's frontiers under attack, Political divisions within the colony would make everything far more complicated. Pennsylvania politics during the 1750s basically broke down into three parties that all wanted different things. The first party to discuss was the Quakers. They had long been the dominant faction in Pennsylvania politics and continued to exercise a large amount of control and influence. The Quakers, despite the very real risk facing them and their fellow colonists, were seemingly unwilling to violate that core tenet of pacifism. Even after multiple raids, including a massacre of a group of pacifist Moravians in November 1755 by the suddenly no longer neutral Delaware tribes, the Quakers had little interest in providing funding for a proper defense. Where things would become even more diluted, however, is that the non-Quaker element in Pennsylvania was further split into two groups the Proprietary Faction, and the Anti-Proprietary Faction. These two groups, perhaps unsurprisingly, differed in how they viewed their relationship to the Proprietary Penn family. The Proprietary Faction believed that the Penns should be completely immune from taxation in all cases, including in cases of the common defense. The Anti-Proprietary Group, led by Benjamin Franklin, called foul on this and wanted to see the pens pay their fair share. Eventually, Franklin would work out a deal with the Penn family that saw them make a gift in the amount of 5,000 pounds and maintain their immunity. This gift was likewise labeled in super vague terms that allowed the Quickers to look the other way and pretend that the funds were not intended for the defense of the colony. Franklin, it should be noted, had a famously terrible relationship with the Penn family and would find hard to get their charter revoked. This will eventually become helpful to us, because it is going to place Franklin in London for virtually all of the imperial crisis. This complicated political situation was not just contained to the Pennsylvania colonists either, but it extended to their relationship with the tribes in the region. As we discussed a few minutes ago, the relationship between the Pennsylvania colonists and the Delaware tribes had by this point completely collapsed the chief of the eastern Delaware, Teddy had originally wanted to ally himself with the British. However, the lack of commitment by the Pennsylvanians to supply his warriors with weapons had many of the younger warriors looking towards the French-aligned tribes. Wanting to maintain his own influence, this is the path that Teddy himself would follow as well. Although the Pennsylvania colonists lacked any kind of militia, the war had nonetheless posed a serious risk for the attacking tribes. For a group that was largely nomadic, there really were only minimal food stores. A single failed harvest was a disaster. However, when looking at a second failed harvest in 1756, Teddy S. Kung was now facing down a catastrophe. Therefore, Tedeschi himself was deeply concerned with the increasingly real risk of starvation following the 1755 and 1756 harvest failures. This in turn caused the Delaware tribes to head north towards New York to seek help from the Iroquois. This would, however, bring complications of its own. Though his own station had diminished following 1755 and his getting trapped along the southern banks of Lake George, William Johnson remains a critical point of contact between the Iroquois and the British. The Iroquois occupied a strange place in the French and Indian War. They were at least nominally allied with the British, though, realistically, neutrality had become the position of the Confederacy. The Mohawk tribes had remained frequent partners of the British, whereas other individual tribes worked with the French against British interest. William Johnson knew better than to push too hard on the Iroquois, as the last thing that anybody wanted to do was to shove them fully into the French camp. What, therefore, had emerged was an uneasy balance. The British did, however, understand the considerable amount of influence that the Iroquois still held over the tribes under their control. The Iroquois, therefore, were under pressure from Johnson to apply pressure of their own to the Delaware to stop their reign of destruction along the Pennsylvania frontier. This, by itself, was not an easy task. The Iroquois Confederacy by this point was anything but a cohesive group, with several of the member tribes actually now collaborating with the French, and really only the Mohawk remaining completely loyal to the British. The Mohawks, however, were willing to apply the pressure necessary, as they themselves feared the possibility of an eventual Delaware attack. With that, the Iroquois, being led by the Mohawk, informed Teddy Gung that he really needed to give up the raiding, and that everybody needed to come together and work towards a greater overall peace. Teddy Gung was never really a warmonger, and was acting more out of pragmatism in his decision to fight against the British than anything else. His people had been moving towards war, and he did not want to be left behind. However, when the opportunity presented itself for him to slide into his role of peacemaker, it was a role that Teddy Yaskung readily jumped at. His primary goal in this entire ordeal was to secure a permanent settlement for the Delaware tribe in the eastern portion of Pennsylvania. He fully believed that in the role of a peacemaker, he had a much better chance of achieving that ultimate aim. As all of this is happening, and Teddy Yaskung is evaluating his own position in the greater overall conflict. Back in Pennsylvania, politics had also taken an interesting turn during 1756. Although there had always been a wink-wink, nudge-nudge agreement in place when the Pens made their gift the year before, the militarization of the colony never sat well with a majority of the Quakers. In April 1756, when Pennsylvania Governor Robert Morris officially declared war, the Quakers quickly found themselves that much more isolated from the direction that the colony was moving. And as a quick note, Governor Robert Morris is of no relation to the Robert Morris that would be a signer of both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. However, he is the uncle of Governor Morris, who would end up signing the Constitution. The event that finally broke the camel's back came when the Quakers' Joseph Fox and John Mifflin, the father of a future signer of the Constitution, Thomas Mifflin, failed to object to, and actually supported, a program of Indian bounties. This caused a brief firestorm and a period of reflection for the Quakers. Both men were effectively excommunicated from the Society of Friends. This event would lead to a wider movement amongst Quaker leadership to leave the government outright. They did not like the way things were going, and simply were unwilling to give up their pacifism, as they held that as a core tenet of their beliefs. This led to a mass exodus of Quakers from public life. Suddenly, men like Benjamin Franklin found themselves in a position to step into the void left by the Quakers' exit. With the Quakers gone, Pennsylvania was suddenly free to take a much more aggressive stance, with pacifism quickly falling out of favor. Despite this change, however, 1756 was a rough year, cumulating in the destruction on July 30th of Fort Granville, something that we had talked about back in episode 3.30. With the fall of Fort Granville, the Pennsylvania frontier essentially fell all the way back west to Carlisle, which was within striking distance of Philadelphia itself. Everybody was pretty on edge throughout the summer months of 1756. The frontiers remained fraught with danger and... Despite the declaration of war, the Pennsylvania government was scrambling to mount anything even resembling an effective defense. Although the Quakers had effectively self-perched themselves from the government of Pennsylvania, they would still remain politically important. The real importance of the Quakers was rooted in those deep pacifist tendencies. They had noped out of the government, yes. However, that did not mean that they were going to idly stand by while Pennsylvania went on the warpath. They remained dedicated to working out a peaceful solution. With the April Declaration of War, the Quaker community became that much more eager to figure out some way to calm everybody down and to stop the fighting. In response to the ongoing war, and the disturbing bounty system being offered by the colonial government, the Quakers, under Israel Pemberton, formed the Friendly Association for Regaining the Preserving Peace with the Indians by pacifist measures. This formed the basis of something of an unofficial diplomatic corps between the Quakers and the Indians. Pemberton would become essentially the de facto Quaker leader and would often act as the group's official voice during negotiations. His grandparents, Phoebe and Phineas Pemberton, had been some of the first colonists to come over to Pennsylvania with William Penn himself and Israel Pemberton was a well-respected member of the Society of Friends. As a quick aside, he will not be the last Pemberton in our story. Way off in our future, when we get to the Civil War, we will encounter John C. Pemberton, a lieutenant general in the Confederate Army, who would be the commanding general over Vicksburg when it surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant. John Pemberton is the great-grandson of Israel Pemberton. It is a small world, folks. Luckily for Pemberton and the Quakers, they provided a sympathetic ear for Teddy Esgung, who was now envisioning himself as being a peacemaker. Through these Quaker emissaries, both the government of Pennsylvania and the Delaware agreed to a conference to discuss specific grievances that was planned to occur in Easton that July. By this point, both sides were feeling some very considerable desperation. Governor Denny, who had taken over for Governor Morris in 1756, was getting increasingly worried about the possibility that the Western and Eastern Delaware tribes would soon be able to link up with one another. The frontier was a disaster for the new governor, and a peace agreement was needed to stop the bleeding. Teddy at the same time, was equally desperate, as he had grown concerned with the ability of the Delaware people to continue the fight, in light of the continued failed harvests. The initial conference at Easton would come in July 1756. Taking place at the end of the month, the first conference was more limited in scope than would be the future conferences. In fact, in a lot of sources that I read, this first conference is just ignored with the November conference being referred to as the First Conference of Easton. In terms of substance, the real takeaway from this first meeting was more clarification of everybody's roles during these peace conferences. The Quakers, despite their self-purging from the government, attended and played the role of the quasi-mediators. Out of the government and dedicated to peace, Teddy Gung viewed the Quakers as being fair dealers and demanded that they be present in the negotiation. However, really, rather than any major debates towards the end of the war, the conference would see more of a clarification of roles than anything else. Teddy Yaskun was busy negotiating. However, really, it was pretty clear to everybody that he did not have any legitimate authority to be conducting the negotiations. The Delaware were a client of the Iroquois, and, at least in theory, were subordinate to them. The result of this first meeting was arrangements between Teddy and the Iroquois, establishing the basis for the future conferences. The Delaware confirmed that the Iroquois still maintained hegemony over the Susquehanna Delaware, and Teddy agreed to accept Iroquois leadership. And just a note on this, at the moment, when referring to the Delaware Indians, I am talking specifically about the Eastern Delaware Indians. There were other groups of Delaware people who had moved into the Ohio country and had absolutely nothing to do with Teddy S. Gung. This group was often referred to as the Western Delaware. Keep this in mind because it is going to be coming up back down the road. The Iroquois, for their part, raised the status of Teddy S. Gung and bestowed upon him the title of King of the Delawares. From this point forward, Teddy S. Gung had authority to treat with the Pennsylvanians directly and negotiate towards a peace. Though important for helping establish our players moving forward, little other substance came from the first conference. The Second Conference of Easton would prove to have a bit more substance to it. Set to occur in November 1756, this would mark the first time that everybody would sit down and get to the difficult task of trying to forge a peace. Teddy Gung did not come into the Second Conference of Easton lightly. His goal was twofold. First, he wanted a repudiation of the walking purchase of 1737. Specifically, he wanted the British to admit that the deal reeked of fraud and that the entire thing had been predicated on false pretenses. As compensation for the walking purchase, he was demanding 2.5 million acres of land in the Wyoming Valley an area near modern-day Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. This was to be that permanent reservation for the Delaware people that Teddy Eskunk so desperately wanted. When the conference took place in November, the actual results were far less grandiose than a reversal of the walking purchase. However, several key bits of progress were made. Denny agreed to provide some monetary relief to Teddy Skunk, as well as provide some hunting lands and open back up a degree of trade. Denny refused to take any action on the walking purchase, but at least stated that he was open to considering the claims of fraud that Tadias presented. Tadias simply agreed that he would bring any European hostages being held by the tribe to a conference to be held in 1757. Well, not the dramatic outcome that anybody would have asked for. The walking purchase was not tossed aside, and the Pennsylvania frontier remained a very dangerous place. Talks were at the very least happening. The negotiation would further get the interest of the Penn family, who were suddenly very concerned that the Pennsylvanians were actually giving some consideration that the walking purchase maybe was formed through fraudulent means, something that they simply could not get behind. For the first time, it was now the proprietors who were looking vulnerable. In the assembly, the now leading anti-proprietary party recognized that Thomas Penn was on the ropes, and decided that this would be a good moment to send Benjamin Franklin across the Atlantic to take up the fight in London. Franklin would spend the next 16 years in London. While there, he would fight earnestly for an investigation into the walking purchase, much to the considerable chagrin of the Penns. The Third Easton Conference took place in July and August 1757. The third conference was a larger affair than the first two had been. What the third conference would end up being was a convoluted mashup of different interests that would pull everybody in opposing directions. So before moving forward, I'm going to do my best here to give a quick rundown of exactly what everybody was fighting for. The easiest person of this group to parse out is Teddy Gung. He had already made his position known. He wanted the walking purchase denounced and reparations in the form of a massive land grant in the Wyoming Valley. A group of Senecas, representing the Iroquois Confederacy, also accompanied Tediascung along on this trip. The Seneca were there for a couple of reasons. First, at least in theory, they were there to assist Tediascung and help him in his negotiations. Though, as we are going to see momentarily, their interests did not exactly align with those of Teddy Uskung. They were also there to remind everybody that the Iroquois were still major power brokers. Yes, they had given Teddy Eskang the right to negotiate, but they wanted it to be abundantly clear that they gave Teddy Uskung the right to negotiate. Governor Denny, on the surface, wanted to oppose that and fight for the rights of the proprietors in the Penn family. However, Denny was also under pressure from Lord Loudon, who was then in control, to bring peace to the frontiers. Loudon really could not care any less about the property claims of the Penn family, and truth be told, it was not something that Denny cared much about either. So, while well, at least on the surface he was going to have to pay the requisite amount of lip service to the Penns, he was pretty much completely on board with doing what was necessary to bring peace. An advantageous peace for Pennsylvania, and therefore the king, yes. But he was not about to get held up on some claim of land rights from Thomas Penn. The Quakers resumed their role of being the de facto mediators. They wanted peace, and they were really not terribly concerned with how they got there. They agreed with Teddy Gung that the walking purchase was not a great look, and probably needed to go. The Quakers throughout the process had done little to ingratiate themselves with Denny, who, despite being at least seemingly on the same page, was annoyed at their constant interference. Despite taking a stance that they were acting out of a place of official neutrality in the proceedings, it was pretty clear by the third conference that the Quakers were not only not neutral, but they had placed themselves firmly within the camp of Teddy The final group that attended the meeting, was comprised of the representatives for the Pens, those Sienica members who had come along with Teddy Eskug and were observing the proceedings, and George Krogan. Krogan was there as a representative of William Johnson, who remained the only person officially sanctioned to conduct Indian diplomacy. George Krogan was also a prolific trader, with a whole ton of personal land and financial interests in the ongoing talks and wanted to leverage his position to make sure that his own interests remained well protected. This group saw the writing on the wall. The walking purchase was going to be coming under scrutiny, something that none of them really wanted to see. The Pens obviously wanted to protect their property rights. However, for the Iroquois and Johnson, whose close relationship with the Iroquois was critical, they were really desperate to keep anybody from digging too deeply into the agreement. The Iroquois were complicit in the fraud and needed this investigation shut down. With it now becoming clear that such an investigation was going to happen, the goal quickly shifted to ensuring that the wrong guy does not go poking around the agreement, but rather that the right guy does. The compromise that this faction therefore presented was that, okay, sure, we can review the walking purchase, so long as the guy reviewing it for potential fraud is William Johnson the 3rd Eastern Conference proved to be the most successful yet. Part of the advantage is that although everybody seemed to have competing interests, and in some cases like Denny, his own objectives contradicted each other, there really was a consensus amongst the major players that peace was necessary. Teddy Eskeng, Denny, the Quakers, and the Pennsylvania commissioners on hand during the conference all had the same overarching aim, and that was peace. Despite an often tense conference, something resembling progress was made. The walking purchase remained paramount, and yet again the British just kind of danced around the question. Denny agreed to review land deeds and even made a big show of it. However, the walking purchase was not amongst the deeds reviewed. While Teddy Yescom backed off his request amending a land grant, he did receive a permanent village in the Wyoming Valley. Though not exactly as expansive as he wanted, it was still something. This village, built at British expense, would include lodgings, trading posts, and a school. Teddy Eskunk, critically for the British, agreed not only to cease hostilities amongst the Eastern Delaware tribes, but agreed that they would do what they could to bring the other Ohio tribes, including the critical Western Delaware Indians, If not on board as allies, at least to a point of neutrality. The legacy of this third conference is mixed. The question of the Walking Purchase remained unsettled. Agreements had been reached that the Delaware would get a village in the Wyoming Valley, a project being largely bankrolled by the Quakers. However, any investigation into the Walking Purchase and the fraud surrounding it would have to wait for now. Back within Pennsylvania, Throughout the rest of 1757 and into 1758, factions inside the government would spend a lot of time pointing fingers at one another. Those on the council friendly to the pens exonerated the proprietors from any wrongdoing and instead claimed that the only reason anybody is going down this road is Quaker interference. The Quakers, meanwhile, were busy with the project of building a new Delaware town up in the Wyoming Valley. There was, however, reason for hope. At a minimum, the eastern Delaware were now out of the war. There was at least the possibility that the Ohio tribes who had been so closely aligned with the French may now consider jumping ship and joining the British. Of course, absolutely nothing at this point was written in stone. But the door had at least been opened, and the fortunes of the British seemed to improve. Along the frontiers of Pennsylvania at the end of 1757, there was something that had been sorely lacking for a few years now, a glimmer of hope. This is where I am going to leave things for today. We have gotten our Southern Theater caught up with the rest of our story as everybody prepares to enter 1758 together. Next time, we are going to pick up right here where we are leaving off today. With ongoing peace talks and now William Pitt commending the war effort, the colonists are desperate to fight and secure their frontiers and bring it into the war in the Ohio. Until then, I hope that you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you all back here next time as we finally bring peace to the Ohio.